Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello. Hello, this is Gwendolyn Galsworth, just like the gentleman said. I'm your host at The Visual Workplace, our weekly radio show on letting the workplace speak. I'm really delighted you have joined us today, taken your important time and focused, for a little while anyway, on workplace visuality. Each week on our show, we look at some aspect of workplace visuality, that is, how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the physical landscape of work through visual devices. We are embedding our own intelligence and making it tangible, making it reside in the physical workplace. We can do it simply through the visual wear. We can do it in a much more complex way as we get our operational systems to link visually, to talk to each other. Hmm? And what we get as a, as a result is, well, basically, we get to enjoy our work on a personal level. The struggle disappears. And what our company or the enterprise um, receives as a reward is a tremendous boost in their finances. Profit margin, not just profit, but profit margin. We see 15 to 30% increase in productivity. Hmm? We see tremendous cultural benefits, tremendous cultural alignment. And one of the reasons why visuality is such a powerful factor in cultural alignment is because we're really working on the level of language when we work on the level of visuality. We're working on the level of meaning. How do we translate information into meaning? And how do we embed that meaning and the willingness that we have to respond to meaning into the landscape of work, into the actual physical environment, so that the floors speak, the walls speak, the cabinets, no, no, you're not going crazy, they're going to speak to you, the shelves Everything speaks. The physical environment speaks because we gave it a voice. The machine speaks. It's very exciting. I've been doing this work for 30 years. It's going to be 30 years in a few months. Imagine that. Some of the people who are listening today are not yet 30 years on the planet. And I've been doing this stinking work for 30 years. (laughs) It has been such a gift to me. I've loved it every part of it. And today I'm thrilled to bring you one of the brightest minds amongst people dedicated to improving the delivery of health care, Nada Grunden. She is also the author of a brand new book, Lean Lead Hospital Design, Creating the Efficient Hospital of the Future. Did you know that you can cut cost on your hospital building, on your new building by 40%? before the first shovel goes into the ground by following Miss Grundon's recommendations. We'll hear all about that in a moment and more when we begin our conversation with Nada, and I'm really, really thrilled. You know, as you've noticed, I don't do interviews very often. They are actually a lot of work. <laughs> I've got to read the book to begin with of whomever I'm interviewing or get to know them pretty well. But today is just such a great pleasure. So just a few comments and announcements before we jump in. First, thanks for keeping the emails coming. I received one from Pedro. Pedro, thank you very much for your email, amongst others. They're very helpful, and we love your questions. Sometime in June, we're going to be, we'll have another mailbag show, 
So keep your questions coming. We will compile those and put them into a kind of line of logic. Or just call in, of course. And I know you're out there because, you know what, this is really big. This is really big. I have a gifted and charming producer whose name is Sandra Rogers, and she phoned me last Friday afternoon around 3 o'clock, and after her hello, she said, sit down, Gwendolyn. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've done something wrong. Well, remember how I told you that in September when we started, we had about 300 people listening during the course of a month, and then all of a sudden in February... There were 10,000 people listening to our show. I was so excited about it. Well, on Friday, Sandra tells me that the number has jumped in March. What did it jump to? I couldn't believe my ears. 52,000 people are listening to this show a month. They're either listening directly or they're downloading the podcast. She was happy. I was speechless. So, (laughs) I know you're out there. I know you're out there, and I'm so glad. The world is going to get more visual as a result. More visual workplaces, less struggle, more work that makes sense. More joy in the workplace. We're going to do the dance of work. So, here's a quick reminder on uh, some of our other things, some uh, visual thinking seminars that are coming up that are open to the public. I'm off to England uh, tomorrow morning, and I'll be there next week for a double benchmarking tour and a visual thinking uh, seminar twice in one week. It's okay. I love this work. First at PepsiCo near Manchester and then at Corin, an aerospace manufacturer near Gloucester. So I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm really, really exciting, excited about it. And I get to go hiking in the lakes two days beforehand. So I'm going to be in fine feather. The following week, May 1st, I'm going to be in Jacksonville for a visual thinking seminar in conjunction with the Shingo Prize a National Conference, International Conference. And that's when I hook up with my brother Gary, the plumber and the poet. So if you want to know more about that, visit shingoprize.org. Gary will not be mentioned on the website. On June 12th and 13th, we do a visual thinking seminar in San Antonio, this time sponsored by AME. We'll do a visual assessment of the plant Global 2 Manufacturing, and we have Doug Carlberg to thank for that invite. If you want to know more, please visit ame.org. So you'll find all the details on our website as well, visualworkplace.com, and you can learn about our products and services. But now, now let's say hello to Nada Grunden, and please call in with your questions. The folks in the studio will take care of that. Our listener call-in line, as you know, is 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. So... Nada Grundin, welcome to the Visual Workplace. Welcome to Work That Makes Sense. I am really thrilled that you have joined us today. Well, thank you so much, Gwendolyn. I'm really happy that you've uh, you've invited me to be on your program today. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. So you've been in the field of documenting the interface between healthcare and the Toyota and Toyota-based processes now for well over a decade, and I know in 2007. You published a book to rave reviews called The Pittsburgh Way to Efficient Healthcare, Improving Patient Care Using Toyota-Based Methods. Outstanding book. And now last month, your new book came out, Lean Lead Hospital Design, which you co-authored with Charles Haygood. And by the way, everyone, both of these books are available on Amazon. 
both in hardback and in Kindle versions. So why don't we begin, Nader, to enter into the subject by your giving us uh, some sense of your background and what brought you into this field of research and analysis. Well, it's been, um, it's just with my great good fortune in the year 2001 to become the communications director for then fledgling Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative. This was a, a fabulous idea that was begun in, in Pittsburgh. By the way, I just want to say as a little aside, the reason that I was living in Pittsburgh is that uh, as I was married to an airline pilot for U.S. Airways, we ended up in Pittsburgh. So I come at safety culture with uh, different sets of knowledge, and you'll hear me lapse into um, airplane analogies from time to time because that also makes sense to me. But in 2001, I was working with the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative, which was then under the leadership of Alcoa CEO Paul O'Neill and uh, Jewish Healthcare um, um, President Karen Feinstein. Well, during that time, I learned a lot about lean as they decided it was an interesting uh, time in Pittsburgh. They've discovered that big steel was gone and it wasn't coming back. And in its place, the biggest economic driver in the region was health care. So Paul O'Neill wanted to know, why aren't, why aren't we the best in healthcare then? And how could we get there? And couldn't we use these, um, techniques and philosophies from the, from industry, namely the Toyota production system? Couldn't we introduce that kind of thinking into hospitals to get some additional efficiency and better safety? So based on those ideas, which were very bold and groundbreaking in 2001, um, the initiative went into 41 hospitals across the region. And um, that, you know, that was, that was really quite a sweeping and um, bold endeavor. Wow, fantastic. 41 hospitals. I just can't even imagine that. But just in terms of your own background, would you say are you uh, a rider by training? Or just give us an idea of way, way back when were your roots are. Well, I started are. As, a, as a high school English teacher. I am a rider by, by trade and by training. When I discovered that I enjoyed writing more than I enjoyed teaching writing, um, I, <laughs> I went into writing as a as a way to make a living. So I've been writing professionally since 1980, various things from uh, chemistry and environmental engineering firms to work for the pilots union to work for a, a major school district in the Pennsylvania region. So I've written wherever I've gone, but I have to say that by far the most interesting and life-fulfilling work I've done has been since I've been uh, introduced in lean healthcare in this way, really from the very beginning. And, you know, this back in 2001, Gwendolyn, this is when people were still saying, well, that industrial model would never work in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember it well. And I also want to just mention that because you're a writer, and for those of you who are listening, the thing about writing is that in order to write, you first have to see. You have to have really good eyesight, and you have to be able to differentiate between this and that. And the only difference between this and that is two letters, and you have to be able to see that. So anyway, getting back to your new book, um, which you co-authored, I'll say once again, with Charles Haygood, you take on, in healthcare the building itself. What I found so very interesting in your book, amongst many, many other things, is the way in which operations informs architecture. That's, that's a real new perspective, or so I learned in reading your book. So please talk about that a little bit. We're going to slide into a break in the middle of what you have to say, but uh, I'll let you know. Please. Okay. Well, um, currently, healthcare processes are, are constructed around departments. You'll see that in terms of process movement. We have this department and that. Um, and they're, they're done in terms of, of individual functions. 
with lean, as you know, it's all about the patient experience as they move through those different functions. And so when we start to do process improvement, we follow the patient's journey. Well, it's no different when we look at the architecture of the buildings. The patients move laterally, side to side, and they slide through those different functions of care. We can make it easier, uh, first of all, by looking very in very great detail at the processes, and second, by looking in great detail at the building. Wow. So, so when did this occur to you to actually look at the building and enter into the design phase? Well, one of the things that has been very fortunate for me is uh, after... Um, oh, after I made a mistake. I'm sorry. We're going into a break. We'll pick up that question. I beg okay. your pardon, everyone. I'll pick, we'll pick up that question right afterwards. I got a little too engrossed. We'll be back in a minute, everyone. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi. Hi, this is Gwendolyn, and I'm here with Nada Grundon, who is a co-author with Charles Haygood of Lean Lead Hospital Design. How to... Create the efficient hospital of the future, creating that. And just before the break, Nada was talking to us about following the customer, following the customer and getting into the customer experience. She was referring to that as a patient because really the real customer of the hospital, of course, is us, is us as a, as a patient and following that customer, that patient as they move through the architecture. And I had asked her, what brought you to 
examining the hospital as an opportunity for improvement. It's such a zero-based assumption. The building's going to be there, but instead you have taken that assumption and you're now developing it into an opportunity for us. Please talk to us about that, Nita. Well, it's been my great good fortune to partner up with Charles Haygood of Healthcare Performance Partners down in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was his forward thinking on the issue of architecture and design that got me thinking along these lines. And that our partnership has been, um, I go from hospital to hospital and I learn from him uh, more and more how to, how to think and how to look at architecture processes. You know, uh, Gwendolyn, if you look at traditional architectural design, they focus on design right away. The architecture, why do you hire them? The architect, you hire them to put lines on the page. Well, if you look at a lean-led design, the focus is on adding value for the customer or patient, and it starts with observation at the point of, of work. I mean, doesn't that sound familiar? Um, but it's very foreign to the uh, traditional architectural process. And, you know, in terms of um, in traditional architectural design, you'll find that they'll get user groups, and these are, with the best of intentions, trying to get the, the information, what's going to make the best hospital here that people are going to work in mm-hmm. and feel satisfied and, and feel as though they're giving the very best of patient care. So they talk to these user groups. Well, these are the leaders of the different silos or the different departments. Um, in a lean-led design, what we do is we take a really broad swath of people from all departments, but also from all levels of authority. So you may have, well, there's my favorite uh, photograph in the book, is of the cardiac surgeon pointing to a floor plan that everyone has, has devised in committee in, 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 con, in uh, concert with each other. It's the cardiac surgeon, and he takes aside the uh, technician, and he says, will this work for you? And he's showing, he's showing her a closet. Will this work for you if we put this closet here? So you're looking at, at such a level of detail that ordinarily you are not able to do with traditional design. So that's, those are, you had asked me earlier, what are some of the distinctions between lean-led architectural design and the traditional methods? The building matters a great deal. It can foster or inhibit um, lean design today, lean process design today and into the future. You know, if you think about it, um, the way that cabinetry is put in, if it's put in um, and bolted to the wall versus um, collapsible and movable. Those are the sorts of things that a, a, a designer can look at to create a flexible building for the future. Right, fantastic. So you're really uh, creating flexible cells around yes. the flow. Yes. Oh, you have some great stories. We're going to get to the Monroe case study, I'm sure, before uh, during, during our conversation. But, you know, thinking about that quote that in your book – you said, no wonder hospital personnel are in silos. We build them that way. So what you're saying is the hospital, the way the architecture is, really forces people into these silos. Even if they want to break out of them, they're kind of structurally imprisoned in that, in that paradigm. Yes, and you know what? It was a thrilling moment to hear this young architect who had been sitting in on these, design, these lean-led design um, um, sessions Come up, she said that to me herself. She said, well, no wonder hospitals are in silos. We, we still build them that way. So the light really went on for her and it was a thrilling moment for me as a writer to be able to get that great quote. But you're absolutely right. What that reflects is, oh, the hospital is actually inhibiting, uh, um, collaboration and, and, uh, and collegial relations in some ways. Mm-hmm. Inhibiting flow, which is the absolute basic 
Absolutely. of Dr. Premise of, of all lean, of all lean and all visual mm-hmm. lean, um, work. And that's where you say even before the first shovel goes into the ground, you can get 40% of your building cost, um, uh, cut. It's so yes, that's interesting. That's a pretty dramatic uh, quote. That's from John Toussaint at Thetacare in Wisconsin. And that was their experience there. But they were so very deliberate and so very careful about the way that they went about it. Um, rather than doing everything in one fell swoop, gee, let's, let's redesign this entire hospital right now. What they did mm-hmm. was very smart. They took one floor and they said, look, we want to redesign the way we give care. We want to create this collaborative care model where we, um, we we collaborate better across lines. So they had a process model in mind. They also mm-hmm. wanted to create a perfect floor where that uh, those activities could be could take place easily. They created nurse servers and made sure that customized supplies were always at the bedside and that they were easy to restock. All of those things that you talk about um, in the in the visual workplace as well. It's easy to see what needs to be stocked. So they, they did that, but guess what they did? They experimented with that model, that process model, collaborative care, in that space, that collaborative floor, for two years before <laughs> they called it good and mm-hmm. before they moved, moved ahead mm-hmm. with it. And mm-hmm. by that time, they were, they were um, noting things like a 50% increase in the amount of time that nurses spent with the patients. So there were some fabulous wins before the shovel ever went into the ground and before they ever built new facilities. Oh, that's fantastic. One thing, what is a nurse server? I'm not familiar with that term. Oh, and others- I'm sorry. You know what? As the, as the jargon slayer, I apologize. Um, <laughs> the nurse server is actually a uh, drawer that can be pulled out into the hallway or pushed into the room. It can be accessed either from the hallway or from inside the patient's room. And if you think about that for a minute, the oh. person who is restocking can do it from the hallway without going into the oh. patient's room to risk disturbing or bringing in any oh. germs or anything like that. And the nurse on the inside also has access at all times. And that, it's just a little drawer. When you think right now of how often nurses have to leave a room to run down the hall to get a thingamajig, it's a, it's a shameful amount of wasted time and, and travel. So having so it's the, like a little tunnel. It is. Oh, it is. that's so cool. And, um, yeah. it's, well, it's kind of a big tunnel. But they, mm-hmm. they are able then to, to stock um, things as close as possible to the point of care, which is one of the principles of lean. Yeah, excellent. Point of use, point of care. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, a, a couple of things. Um, a couple of shows ago, everyone, we talked about s- some of the factors for implementing successfully visuality and remember we spent a lot of time talking about how important it is to start small to learn how to apply the principles to create a demonstration to create a model and basically that's what you're describing Nada in what Theta Care did is they built their model first they worked out the bugs they didn't try to convert the whole building before December the 31st they instead understood humbly and mm-hmm. Uh, openly that they needed to learn how to do this first. I think that is just such a powerful implementation principle. It really gives us a chance to stay open and love the learning part instead of really being defeated as soon as we undertake something new. Thank you for I, making I like the way that you say that about loving the learning because that is really what happens in lean-led design. Um, very, very much like what you're talking about, Gwendolyn. In, in, a, in a lean-led design exercise, for example, they will try to come up with seven ways to solve one problem. 
Mm-hmm. Let's say that the problem is we want to make sure that the patients always have what they need and the, the nurses always have what they need. Uh, they will they will use tongue depressors, pieces of styrofoam, colored paper, paper clips, whatever sort of humble materials they have on hand, and each team will mock up, here, this might work, here, this might work. They mm-hmm. mercilessly steal ideas from one another, and mm-hmm. by the end of this exercise, they've come up with dozens of different ways to solve the problem. And the reason it's important to do that is it gets you out of the usual thinking. Mm-hmm. It prevents you from importing your old processes and your mm-hmm. old problems into your brand new building. It's a way of sort of breaking the adhesions around your old thinking. Yeah. And the oh, fabulous excellent. and creative things that staff members will come up with in these, um, in these, in these sessions is just about breathtaking. And and given that it's very low risk and they have a a complete license to go anywhere. And for those of you who are familiar with the three Ps, if you find similarities, it's because one of the techniques that's used in this design in preparing operations for a new building and getting the waste out of operations so the building can reflect that is the three Ps. I just want to mention that Uh, process, um, excuse me, tell me again, process parts. And what's what's the third P of the three Ps? Um, uh, pay, well, I, we call it patient, or you know, the customer, and then mm-hmm. process, and then preparation. So yeah, it's, preparation, um, that's, in, right. in, that's the way that we do it. We at HPP, they've come, they've they've uh, taken a little bit of license with the three Ps. I know at other organizations there are only two Ps. They figure they know who their client is. Um, <laughs> at other places, they've got four Ps, and I'm not sure what the fourth one is. We'll just and, move uh, on. We'll just this, move on. This three P model has preparation as the last step because. As you know, moving in to the new hospital once it is built is another huge occasion for gains if you use lean lead design mm-hmm. because then you can look at things like visuality and look at things like how much do we really need and where does it really need to go and standardization, of course, which is huge, um, moving into the new building. So that's the part that we call preparation. You know, I want to say, um, and I wanted to make sure to tell you this, Nada, there are many great parts to this book that you and Charles have written. It's clear, it's lively, it's precise, it's so useful, terrific examples. I love the one on Monroe Clinic, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But honestly, one of the things that just knocked me on the head was the discussion of lean period in a wide, a much wider way than I had conceived of before. You spoke of lean synonymous with continuous improvement. And for those people who have been listening listening to some of my shows over the last four or five months, you know that I make a clean distinction between visual and lean because I want to be able to see the contribution of each to the journey of excellence, operational excellence. Visual is about information, adherence, sustainment, and meaning, and lean is about pull, time, and the critical path. Both are about flow. Both are about excellence. And it's been hard for me to adopt this notion about lean being everything because that's the way it's in manufacturing. Lean is just an alphabet soup. Everything is in the pot. But your open, the opening chapters of your book, you articulate such a clear case for lean as continuous improvement that, well, frankly, I could buy it for the first time. I was so surprised because I've been pretty much on my soapbox about this for years. And I finally figured out, <laughs> it's true, people know about it, that one of the reasons why such a wide def- definition is palatable to me 
from you is because we're talking about the healthcare setting. It is a new setting for me. I mean, I've done work in hospitals before, but I mean, the depth to which you've implemented the lean part, I've done the visual part. Mm-hmm. So rather than having the kind of stringent requirement of lean being about tack and standard work, as we find in factories, in the theater of human care, it can comfortably embrace continuous improvement and be very, very powerful. I want to thank you so much for that. So I have uh, taken some of your airtime. I'm going to give it back to you right after our next break. We're sliding into it now. I hope, everyone, you're seeing the similarities between the work that Nada and Charles uh, Hapgood, I'm sorry, Haygood has, have done is, is factory work but in a healthcare setting, and it's so, so interesting. Thank you. We'll be back in just a moment. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Gwendolyn. Hi there. And I'm here with Nada Grundon. She and Charles Haygood are co-authors of a wonderful new book, just came out last month, Lean-Led Hospital Design, Creating the Efficient Hospital of the Future. And before we go on to more questions, why don't you tell folks how they can get in touch with you or with Charles and get the book besides through Amazon. Well, they can get in touch with me. I'm at nadagrunden.com. It's N-A-I-D-A-G-R-U-N-D-E-N.com. And you can get in touch with Charles through hpp.bz. Great. And your books are available also on your website? Yes, they are. Perfect. And we also have a book website, which is leanledhospitaldesign.com. If people want to go and just learn a little bit more about the book, and you can read the, the foreword, which is written by Dr. Richard Shannon. Oh, and what a foreword that is, honestly. I, in fact, if you would permit me... Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to just read the opening paragraph because I found it astonishing. I have it all marked up. Let me just find <laughs> it. Hang on, I'm finding it right now. Here it is. So he says, never in US history has the subject of healthcare costs 
been so visible or so contentious or so contentious. While few Americans can truly appreciate what $2.6 trillion or 18% of GDP really means, more and more perceive the double-digit increases in terms of their premiums, their attendant social costs, and he talks about how our, our libraries and our education is absorbing the rising health care costs. He also says, stop for a moment and consider how much money $2.6 trillion represents. Spending at a rate of $1,000 every five seconds, it would take 412 years to consume that amount. Wow. It's, it's wow. just mind-boggling. It truly mind- is. Yeah. So this work is putting a shovel into that pile of money and saying let's save some of it for our schools and our libraries and for our police and for our other forms of infrastructure. That's right. There's um, plenty of waste in health care that we can remove and uh, have that be actually not not only not to the detriment of patients but to their benefit as well because as you know and I know, waste is the same as error. Uh, every time something is wasted with every needless handoff, with every needless synapse in the system, that introduces an opportunity for for error. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so I, I'd like to uh, kind of move to some of the specifics. And I was, uh, you spent a lot of uh, time in the book talking about the concept of standardization and flexibility going hand in hand, standardization and flexibility. And you also talk about the standardized room. And then there's that wonderful case study with Monroe Hospital. So can you weave that together for us and and tell us more? Well, yes, I, I can. As as you know, the the opportunities for standardization in healthcare are pretty pretty legion. Very often, um, architects and physicians and others involved in healthcare think that a, a beautiful hospital. Um, or a, that a beautiful hospital is actually preferable to a standardized hospital. And we're finding more and more that that really isn't true. Again, I kind of lapse into the airline talk here, but when talking to my husband and others involved in aviation safety, they find it absurd to think that one day you could walk into your cockpit and the captain would be sitting on the left, and one day you would come in and the captain is sitting on the right, or the fuel switch is on the left today, but on the right tomorrow. It's easy to see in a a cockpit environment how that creates a safety problem. Well, the same holds true in hospitals. And what they advocate, uh, what what we advocate with Lean Lead Design is a truly standardized room. That's not same-handed, and that's not mirror image. It's actually standard with each room being the same. There was a great uh, quote from, from the facilities manager at Monroe Hospital when the light went on and they realized that, yes, indeed, um, contrary to what they really believed, having standardized rooms uh, improved safety. And he said um, the reason they were thinking about having mirror image rooms, this is where one bed on um, one bed would be facing to the right and one to the left. He said that the reason they do that is because all the plumbing would then have to run only in the one wall, and that would save them some money up front. But he's discovered, as many people are discovering, that saving some of those upfront costs and not getting it right saves, uh, makes makes so much more waste in the future. And he said what, what, he didn't he didn't want the plumber to be his safety uh, director. <laughs> but what is the problem with that? That's great. What's the problem with? Um... Well, you said a not same-handed and not mirror image room. What's the problem with having that? Well, for example, um, you walk in and it's an emergency. You have a you have a very sick patient. You can't 
let's say you walk in, uh, you barely step in the room, can you see the patient's head? Can you see their entire body? Um, will you have to look to the right? Will you have to look to the left? If you're looking to the right, does it mean that everything that's in that drawer is the same? Um, but as you know, standardization of what's in each drawer is, is very important. So to have to look on the left, it's really like this, a fuel switch on the left or the right. So getting things absolutely standard where you know you walk in, you can reach over here, this is going to be here, that's going to be there, uh, creates a much safer environment and it's faster uh, and, and better for patient care. I see. So you're talking about a room that's, um, may I use the word uniform, they're uniform locations for vital items and things like that. Correct. Correct. Yes, yes. Including and the patient. <laughs> Including the patient, yes. Where is that patient anyway? Well, among, the things, that, among the things that they discovered at Monroe Hospital, they, this is another thing that's exciting when you work with lean lead design. You look at the current condition, and what they discovered with patient registration was that they were making patients change locations 14 times and go to four different floors to get registered and get through the ambulatory surgery process. And they looked at each other and said, for heaven's sakes, why are we doing that? It was one of those processes that was allowed to evolve rather than purposefully put together. So they, they looked at their new facility that they were going to build. If we're going to build a new hospital, let's build, for heaven's sake, let's build a U-shaped cell that we get the poor person out in six steps in and out. But not only did, not only did it affect the design of the new building, they, once they saw how inefficient it was to move that patient 14 times, they said, let's stop doing that tomorrow in our current space. And that goes to what Gary Kaplan of Virginia Mason Hospital said. He said, don't let a dysfunctional building stop you from making process improvements that improve patient care, no matter what. And so very often you'll see this as people are designing their new building, they're fixing processes in the old one. Aha. This is something that I find that people are reluctant to do, or at least if they don't think about it for a moment, they say, let's do our improvement after we move to our new building or after we move this cell. But in fact, because you have, so what you're saying, this is, we find exactly the same thing in, in the workplaces that I function in, which is get people to do their process improvement and their their continuous improvement in that setting and take the improvements with them to the new setting. And uh, to take that good. improvement, to take the improvement mindset with them too. See, healthcare mm-hmm. people are some of the talent, most talented, most highly educated and highly motivated workers that we have in the world. And so once they see with their own eyes how efficient the, the process is that they're currently working in, it becomes intolerable to them. They go, well, mm. why do we have to do this one more day? So mm. they begin to, to look at ways of, of fixing things. The other thing that happened, they, they were able to really save quite a bit of space in the hospital. One of the things that happened was they said, gee, maybe we could share some space. Maybe the um, pre-op and post-op beds could be located near the ER, emergency room, so that you know patients have surgeries by schedule during the day, and if the if those beds were near the emergency room, then at night when no one's using them, we could flex that space and use them as emergency room beds. There was a hospital in the south that realized an 86% um, increase in the, in the amount of capacity they had in their ER with no square footage added on, just by thinking really carefully about when and where those spaces are used. The other thing is waiting rooms. You talk about a wasted space. We can't afford one. I mean, with how many trillions of dollars that Dr. Shannon mentioned, you can't afford one square foot of space that's not going to be used. So at Monroe Clinic, 
whereas in the past, each department or each function wanted their own waiting room with 20 room with 20 seats in it. They said, well, look, how about this? We're going to make one waiting room per floor with 20 seats in it, give people pagers, let them go to the to the gift shop and the and the cafeteria and so on. And so they've cut the amount of waiting ta- waiting room area by about 70%. So that's like when we go into a very very busy restaurant and there's 50 people ahead of you and they give you a little pager which which lights up when your reservation comes up in the meantime you go to the bar, you go out for a walk just as long as you're in range. It's right. that kind of and thing. Oh, I love that idea. With those kinds of innovations, they find that waiting rooms can be even smaller than they thought before. The other thing that gets really small, you know, um, I, I have a theory, Gwendolyn, you tell me if you think this is right. When people say, we need more people, we need more rooms, we need more storage and more resources thrown at our problem, I believe that what they're truly saying is, we need someone to help us fix our process because it isn't working. And so what we found, especially when it came to storage, oh, who doesn't want more storage? Well, at Monroe Clinic, they've discovered that storage, too much storage and excess storage is actually kind of evil. And they are able to get away with between 30 and 40% less storage. And instead of feeling like they don't have enough, they feel like they have plenty. Mm. You know, I... Oh, there's so many directions I'd like to go here. But since we don't have any questions to direct us, I can ask the questions that <laughs> I want to know this. This is a kind of insider question. How did it go? And we may have to pick this up after the break. How did it go working with doctors? You know how much doctors like to have control. They don't like change a lot. They like things the way they like them because that's the way they like them. How, what, what can you tell us about doctors' readiness to adopt the kind of flexible mindset, innovative, please doctors? My, in fact, my boyfriend is a doctor or, anyway, it's a long story. I like <laughs> doctors very, very much. Well, <laughs> and, uh, um, but, after but the give break, us the inside I'll... skinny. After the break, I'll talk to you a little bit more about aviation and how they were able to make a culture change in that regard. And I'll give you some really good news about young doctors coming up now who really are thinking this way. Oh, that's great. Thank you. We will slide into the break. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks for saving me. (laughs) When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. 
Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790 or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, it's Gwendolyn. I'm here with Nada Grindon. She is the co-author of Lean-Led Hospital Design, Creating the Efficient Hospital of the Future, co-authored, co-authored with Charles Haygood, and her other book, great book, The Pittsburgh Way. Both of them are available through Amazon. They're on Kindle. They're hardback. They're great books. And just before the break, we were talking about, I was trying to get an understanding of how doctors who are, you know, the kind of top of the heap type persons, uh, how doctors feel about the kinds of changes that this flexible thinking brings into their domain. So I turn this over to you, Nada. Be clever about this now. <laughs> well, it's, it's true that uh, physicians have been taught to, that they have physician autonomy. And what that has meant is sometimes the freedom to do it one way and then sometimes the freedom to do it another way based on, oh, individual whim or preference rather than patient, uh, rather than, rather than standard, you know, process. Um, the same thing happened in the airlines. Back in about the 1970s, 80s, and actually clear into the 90s, uh, the captain's authority was a very analogous um, thought, and that was the captain was free to, oh, go around thunderstorms or go through thunderstorms and first officers often kept little preference cards in their in their vest pockets so they knew that captain a liked to do things this way and captain b liked to do things that way well as you can imagine this led to some safety problems and um, there was a huge culture change uh, revolving around something called crew resource management and this was basically inviting captains to use their entire crew, the eyes and ears of everyone on their entire crew, um, as they as they went through uh, any sort of difficulties. The second thing it was to standardize their procedures. And yes, you always have autonomy, and you always have um, physicians uh, physicians autonomy and captain's authority during those times when you're landing on the Hudson River, which happens pretty uh, pretty <laughs> frequently in healthcare more so than in in aviation. Um, so during those moments of crisis, for sure, that's when you need those the, the the great training and capabilities of physicians. But for the usual and normal things, it's it's better to rely on standardized processes, and it's safer. You know, med- medical care is fraught with complexity, and it's legitimate complexity. There's hardly hardly an endeavor in the world that's any more complex or even as close. So what happens in medicine that we can we can do something about is to remove the needless complexity, remove the complexity that I call the self-inflicted complexity, and that is making processes harder than they have to be. 
Um, one of the one of the ways of reducing the complexity is by standardizing. So those are just some thoughts. The the, the encouraging part I, that I thought I would tell you, in terms of um, physicians, the young ones tend to really enjoy this lean thinking and problem solving in groups. Young architects, likewise, you know, another another sort of um, um, tradition bound and gagged um, um, profession. Uh, the architects, the young architects are, are seeing it this way. Mm-hmm. I gave a presentation to a group of architects about this book, and I thought, oh, they're going to hate me because we're asking them to do things differently. We're asking the architect not to take the lead until much later in the process after the healthcare people have had a chance to say what it is they need. And what I found was such a pleasant surprise. I had architects coming up to me afterwards saying, where can we find hospital CEOs who think this way? Where mm. can we find people that we can work with and do it this way? We think it's so wonderful. So mm. I really think that people want to break the old mold because they realize it isn't working. Mm. Wow, that's very, very encouraging. We love our doctors. Absolutely. And we are really glad they're there. Yeah, well, they, they are the backbone of the entire health system, and so everything that can be done to support them needs to be done. Yeah. So, so um, I've got a um, couple of final questions for you. One of them is, what question do you want me to ask that I haven't so far? What do you want to make sure our listeners understand before we sign off? Well, I'm not. I, 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 there are a couple of things that I want to make sure that I've, I've said, and I'm not sure I've, I've, I've um, emphasized enough. And the first is that lean process improvements and building designs are really two sides of the same coin. Um, lean, people say, "Well, gee, we haven't really started our lean transformational journey in this hospital. Can we do that while we're designing a hospital?" The answer is yes. They say, "Well, gosh, we've already got shovels in the ground, and we're already building the hospital. Is it too late for lean?" The answer is probably no. It's it's better sooner, but even up to the last day, and especially during move-in, there's time for lean. The second thing I, I really want to mention is that lean is a personal, it's a very personal journey. I want to relate one story of a move-in at a hospital where the lean um, engineer was giving a little pep talk to these nurses who were about to put away their supplies in the operating room. And there were six nurses there, really really um, experienced people, and he said, okay, here are the basics. Make sure you group things together that you use, um, put things in the middle that you use the most frequently, light things on top, heavy things on the bottom. Okay, now you got the basics. Go ahead and start putting things where you want them. And really, these nurses looked like they were deer in the headlights. They couldn't believe that that was really what was being said to them. And finally, they said, well, look, you tell us where to put the stuff. He said, no, 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 this is not my work. This is your work. You, you put the things where you want to put them. And one nurse began to cry. She said, I've been asked for years. I've, I've been said that my, my um, input had value, but I've never felt, felt it before. I can't believe that I might actually look forward to coming to work. So giving people, it, lean becomes very personal when you allow people to control uh, big aspects of their of their work life, yeah, and the other thing that I wanted to mention is that lean is leadership. Um, one CEO I talked to said, "When you raise your, the expectations of the staff, and the nurse is crying and excited and thinking that her life is going to be better, when you've raised their expectations, it creates a big responsibility for the leaders." So um, those are three things that I that stuck out to me when I thought, "What were the some of the key?" Um, the key moments when I was writing the book. Mm, and I think um, 
people think of lean and process improvement as sort of a dull thing. It's a very personal thing. Yeah, that's very beautiful, very moving. I don't think that we can overvalue or underestimate the human uh, face of lean and uh, the human face of lean-led design, both from the patient point of view and from the people who are creating these improved environments. Thank you. So what's your outlook next? What's happening? Is there a next book or what's new in healthcare? What are you expecting? What's your research telling you? Well, I, I realize that um, even though Charles and I have collaborated on uh, lean-led design now for, it took us about four years to collect the case studies that are in the book and document them and get them, get them in, I still feel as though we're just scratching the surface. What we don't have yet are some of the, what I know are going to be really stunning um, results and improvements over the years. So I hope that we have a, a, a sequel at some point. But other than that, you know, I've been documenting improvements that people said couldn't be done. The elimination of central line infections at one hospital in Pittsburgh and the reduction in the size of hospitals, improved cardiac surgery outcomes. These are, these are things that I have had the privilege of documenting that people just said couldn't be done. So now <laughs> I want more. <laughs> <laughs> I want to document other cases where they say lean will never work. In fact, I'm almost thinking of entitling it lean will never work here. Um, and I want to go into mental health facilities, into poor communities, into addiction units, public health centers, jails, nursing homes, and talk about how dignity and respect and continuous improvement, the backbone of lean, can help those places also achieve wow. efficiency. All the forgotten places of the world, you know, it makes me remember that up until 20 years ago, manufacturing, the workplace was a forgotten place filled with forgotten people. That's very, very beautiful, Nada. Nada, I want to thank you so much for being on our show, for talking to us, for writing with Charles Haygood, such a great book, a groundbreaking book. I hope you will think about coming back and sharing what you're learning now and learn as the book takes hold and you move more deeply into this very, very important field. I want to thank you so very much for doing this work and and thank the Lord that you are interested, that you want to apply your gifts to this and to dig deeper and deeper. Um, again, your books are available on your website, nadagrunden.com and off of Amazon. And Yes. Well, I wanted, I wanted to thank you too, Gwendolyn, for all the contributions you're making to the effort here, um, to, to help turn around health care in our country and, and make work, um, a, a good thing to be doing again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. Next week and the week after that, we'll walk through the four power levels of visual devices. I think you'll really like that. I really like this. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth and Nada Grindon, and we're signing off. I look forward to the next time. You bet I do. Thanks, everyone. We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening.